Hey there, thanks for visiting the podcast of the Guelph Vineyard Church. If you haven't already, please subscribe to our podcast using whatever platform you listen on, or visit our website at guelphvineyard.com. Here's this week's message brought to you by our pastor, Chris McQueen. So I think at least many of us were uh, on the call last Sunday where we talked, we started into this idea of, of, of joy and correlating that with uh with the conversation that we're having about maturity in christ um and the premise being that these are really really closely connected that joy and maturity are part of the same conversation that they are uh, kind of uh requirements almost um that they're you know we're, we're not going to get super far down the road of being flourishing fulfilled expressions that who we were made to be that that language of perfection of, of, of arriving at, um, at into the full intentions of God, uh, that's going to be a joyful place. Um, and the road to that place uh, is going to have and be seeded with encounters and experiences of joy. That's part of how this thing works, um, which maybe presents with, uh, presents some of us at least with with a bit of a problem because joy can be hard to come by um and uh of course i'm seeing i'm seeing joy on um the, the, the human joy on our uh, on the screen this morning and so i i just keep saying that word and looking over it's like well joy is right there joy is right among us um and so this is a little bit of a gift to me today um but uh, but yeah no this experience of joy this experience of, and, and we'll talk a little bit more again about what that what that is. But this is part of our story. It's part of an, our inheritance. It's also part of the toolkit that we have to becoming fully realized, um, fully matured, and and uh, um, enfleshed best version of ourselves, essentially, right? As through the lens of Jesus, as the lens of Christ, our Creator. Um, so last week we started in uh, through the passage in Nehemiah, which is where that song came from, that last song that we sang this morning, the joy of the Lord is my strength. That's a direct pull uh, from this passage in Nehemiah, and I'm going to just read it again this morning. Um, and I do also have another passage that we're going to read that I would love someone else to read today. That's going to be towards the end, but I'm just going to see, does anyone have a desire to read uh, in a little bit, read a passage of scripture, about six verses? Looking for a hand. Who wants to do it? I see you, Tim. You got it. Okay, so Tim, you can get ready on deck uh, and again, we won't touch it for a bit, but uh, Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 to 6. That's going to be coming up. <clears throat> In the meantime, Nehemiah 8, uh, verses 10 through 12, um, reads like this. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks. And send some of those who have nothing, uh, and send, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. 
Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food and to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. And so again, this is revisiting last week a little bit, but that's okay. Repetition is how we actually get things. Um, as a point of context, the people here have actually were in a place of, of grief and they, um, they had been reintroduced to, the, to their holy scriptures. They'd been reintroduced to the law after a, after a good chunk of time apart from it in, um, uh, in exile. And so there's this reading that takes place in the, um, in the process of being rebuilt Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the temple and they pull out the books of the law and, and they start reading. And the way that the people encounter this text is to grieve, to see how far they've missed, how far they've strayed, how, how much is lost, how much work there is to be done and, and how really the distance from this thing that we're talking about, from maturity, from perfection that they are as a people. And so there's a grief that starts to spill out of the people and there are, there are tears and there's, there's um, weeping that's taking place in the people. And then essentially the priests come along and well, Nehemiah and, 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 and the priests, and they come along and they say, hold on, hold on, hold on. We're, there's something else actually. That's, there's something else that we uh, can see here. This day is, is holy. This is, this is a starting day. This is a new day. This is a day one. This is an encounter with something that is, that is beautiful. And this is the Lord's work. And something takes place in the people. Um, and they end up going yeah, and having a party. And as we talked about, it was a six-day party where everyone is fed and where there's lots of food and lots of drink. And it's just, it's a party. It's a big party. And, um, and so there's a transition that takes place. Uh, and I just want to think about that for a minute. A transition that takes place, the transition from a place of what's described as grief, uh, mourning, right? Weeping, tears. Think about those sounds. Think about the expressions that are on one's face when we're carrying those sorts of emotions or responses. And there is a, a transformation to joy and think about those sounds and think about those expressions on the face. Think about the, the so there's this, you know, this turning around. And if there's one thing that I've learned as a human being, it's that ordering somebody to be happy or ordering somebody to be joyful, uh, it just doesn't work, right? If I get all stern and you're being down or I'm, you know, somebody's being down or being, you know, the depressed or whatever, and you look, you should be more joyful right now. Uh, this does not have a desired effect, does it? Um, and because as we've, as we've talked about and not, this is, this, this ought not to be a revelation to anybody, but joy doesn't get transferred this way. Joy is not, is not a, it's not really a directive in that sense, right? Can joy be practiced? I think that it can. Can it be manufactured? I'm not so sure that it can. Can it be forced? Absolutely not. Absolutely, it cannot be. Um, that frowny face is the thing actually that everyone gets to see, right? That's the thing that is actually, is actually transferring and communicating. And so something happened in this people, in this moment, 
where they did not see a frowny face. And also, I'm telling you, I don't think, I mean, they're responding to a new way of seeing what they had heard, um, understanding what they had been taught and what had been read in the scriptures. Sure, absolutely. Um, but it's not it's not an idea or words that translate joy. It is, we mirror, we, we tend to mirror joy, right? And so something that is an, I believe, and I'm reading into the text, but I don't think I'm doing so irresponsibly. Um, something is on the face of Nehemiah. Something is on the face of the priests that are performing these duties and doing these readings that are eliciting a response right? Because that is how we encounter and how we experience and how we transmit joy is, is through the, and we talked about this last week, through the, the expressions that we see in other people's voices and, and barring that in the, in the sounds that we hear. And the sounds are really interesting because, um, you know, and I was thinking about this earlier, discernment is always a really important thing, right? Um, the have you ever heard a sound you're, you know, this happens to us sometimes we've got some neighbor kids in the area and you're out in the backyard and you hear a sound and, 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 and you're like, okay, you listen, you go, okay, either somebody is being murdered or somebody is having the time of their life. I'm just not sure which, right. Um, there's something that we're, we're, you know, some context is really helpful, but you listen and you listen and, and, and there's whatever the thing is that is the differentiator. It's typically some kind of laughter or something, but you hear the thing and you go, okay, I don't need to phone the police. It's all fine. Somebody's having the time of their life, right? Something is getting conveyed. Something is embodied. And I want to think about that. Because, um, and this is a phrase that I think we are going to return to, uh, and again, some of this material at least is, is borrowed um, from, from a book, um, Living from uh, the Heart Jesus Gave You. And they have this expression that they correlate pretty closely with maturity. And so what they have said, I'm not quoting here, but I'm synthesizing um, as I as I do, um, that maturity is the capacity to return to joy from difficult and hard things. Ultimately, the biggest gap, the biggest journey to take if joy, arriving at joy is, is, the, is the hope or the destination, the biggest journey from that point, of course, is you know, we could say from anger to joy, right? That's a bit of a journey from sadness to joy, uh, from depression to joy, from anxiety to joy. These are all things that are journeys that we're going to take. The biggest journey, of course, is to go from grief to joy. That's the, that's the biggest, longest journey, right? Because grief really is the counterpoint. Um, uh, joy and grief are antonyms. They, they don't coexist well. And that's one of the things that we see in the big story of the gospel, this idea that, that the restoration of all things, this idea of a new creation where, where, God, where God's kingdom and his purposes and his rule and his reign and his glory and all of the things that we associate with the presence of God are actually fused together with the things of the earth. 
and there is what there's no more sorrow there are no more tears right there's we have the sense that there's no more grief and so in the in the absence of all of that what that means is that there is an abounding and abundant joy that's part of the inheritance that's part of the story it's not just peace at the end of the story um, not just the absence of conflict but actually there is joy that lives for us that we can anticipate and that's part of of i think what we what we see here and in this story we see a quick transition we see people moved and compelled they are in a place of grief and they are returned to joy they're returned to joy not just in and of themselves and not this is interesting not just by having an encounter with the scriptures either they don't just simply you know um, open in fact their encounter with the scriptures their initial response is a grief response right the consolation isn't self-evident in the law the consolation and the movement and the transformation to to joy actually takes place inside of community. It takes place inside of trusted, trusted community and this and the sense of vulnerability to have someone come and be able to shift perspective. And so we see we see people returning one another to a place of joy. And um, just an important thing that we again will likely revisit is that that's part of the role of community. And that's part of what we, what we see and, and, and hope and, and want to cultivate and build into our own community is that we actually return one another to places of joy, right? And, and, and we're not all gonna be there at the same time either. And very rarely are we going to have someone who is always going to be the, the figurehead for joy in our community at any one time. It shifts. We shift. Our circumstances shift. So part of the question, and I don't have all the answers, but part of the question is, what does it mean to be a community of joy, right? Yes, a community of consolation. Yes, a community that challenges one another. Yes, a community that grows together, but ultimately a community that can return us to joy. And what kind of joy is that? So these are some of the questions that are rolling in and around and beside and underneath this conversation. So let's talk for a second about the counterpoint to joy. Um, and it's the thing that we're just all of us so flipping familiar with at one level or another. Just realize that that, that word may not work in, in every household. Um, but, you know, grief is a really hard thing. And we are all of us really familiar with it, I think. And, and because we're familiar with it, it's worth just exploring for a minute. Where does grief live? Where do we encounter grief? Any thoughts? You can feel free to unmute and say we can you know, we don't need to get into too vulnerable a space here as we're broadcasting, but just, you know, we, where do we recognize grief or where, where do we encounter it, feel it? Where does it live? Okay, that's a, that's a great answer. Yes, grief lives in a fallen world. Yeah, it's definitely one of the primary examples that reminds us that grief is, um, or that the world is fallen is when we see grief. Um, LJ, in the stomach. Oh, gosh, yes. I feel it. I feel it deeply in my stomach at different times. Where else? 
where do we see it? Where do we, where, how do we experience it? And how do we recognize it? Empty spaces, yeah. Recognizing where there was something and there is no longer something. That's a place where we recognize grief. Heartache, yeah. And that's true. Sometimes you see people actually start to, start to actually cover parts where they're actually experiencing grief, right? As we experience it in our, you know, in our, in our heads, on our faces, right? We, we tend, we, we actually tend to our body, don't we, in consolation? And we're going to talk about what's going on there. That's actually a thing, right? Yeah, anxiety is absolutely an expression of grief. So where grief actually lives, like all of our experiences, we, we embody it. it. It shows up. It lands in our guts. It lands in our hearts, it lands on our face and in the tone of our voice, uh, and certainly is expressed in our eyes. A person who's in deep grief, they, they, they can hide many things, but their eyes will not lie. Uh, where it lives is in our brain. It's happening in our, it's happening in our brain. Our brain is, is what is flooding our body with the sorts of uh, chemical response is not to get too material, but there, but there are material manifestations and they, and they are triggered by, and they live in the brain, different parts of our brain fire up and shut down during times of, of sorrow and grief. And I, I found the word, there's actually a particular hormone that kind of floods and it's really hard to say, but basically what happens is that um, it's uh, grief when it's in full force it triggers a certain part of our physiology, makes it hard for us to think well. Our executive function, our ability to decide and to see perspective gets very, very small, right? Um, initially, at least. And it also triggers our fight or flight mechanism, Right? When, we're, when we're grieving, we're very, very vulnerable emotionally. And so we get into this place of defensiveness, we're, or we're, we're going to get out of here, right? And all we want in that space is, is, is something safe. Right? These are the things that get initiated and triggered in grief. And so I see, I see a comment here from Sandra, grief connects us deeply with God. Um, it comes out of nowhere and owns us. And I, I would say absolutely, yes, that is 100% right. I would say that it can connect us deeply with God. It can also, in terms of how we inter, uh, uh, relate to it and, and, and what kinds of responses that we have to it, I've seen grief actually cut people off from God as well. I've seen that happen, where, where grief happens in such a way um, that, that there's a severing that takes place. And so we, you know, it, what we have done to cultivate, and this is where we kind of get into this maturity conversation, what we've done to cultivate our capacity to return to joy or to access our joy centers on some level is really, really important for that next part. What happens? What happens to our sense of the presence of God around us in the midst of grief? Um, and, and those are all really, really important and significant things. And what we're seeing right now, by the way, in the world around us is the strain of the absence of good practices of joy, because we're seeing uh, our society and our world at odds in ways that um, I would not have even suspected were possible two years ago or three years ago. 
right? I always knew that there was a dichotomy of different ways of thinking, different ways of being, but I'm seeing divisions that are continually surprising to me, divisions between people who, who otherwise would be completely in sync and, and love one another well and be close friends. And suddenly there are these issues that are rising up and they're, di they're dividing. And there is this defensiveness and I feel it in myself. I'm in no way a neutral third party in the midst of this. This is, and, and we are seeing a society that's not particularly well equipped to deal with some of the griefs that we've been bearing out over this last time. And some of us have very, very personal griefs um, that are really particular to our own story. And at the same time, there's a shared sense of grief. And I feel it every time I flip the news on, every time I look at a social media feed and see the angst and the, all these things that are coming in. And we are not, as a society, doing a, a particularly bang up job of returning one another to joy. And some of our primary tools of connections to one another are not fundamentally geared towards returning one, us, one another to joy. And so I, I actually recognize that this is a bit of a, a problem for us. This is something where we really, as we sang, Christ alone can do this. We need Jesus to come and to help to reinforce and shore up some of these things. So um, these are some of the challenges that happen when we uh, are surrounded and, and immersed in grief. And when we have a grief-stricken world, it's all that more amplified. Because again, if we are primarily accessing joy by beholding it on the face of another or hearing it in the voice of another, if that's how joy translates and transfers, if it's, if it's not just, hey, I have this idea and this idea is so beautiful that joy is erupting out of me, which by the way, happens to some of us some of the time, but it never happens to all of us all the time, right? It's a communal experience, I think, joy. And so as our society and our world pushes out our joy centers and our joy references further and further from us, and we see the opposite in our face, we see all the anger and the fury and the hatred and the things that are, you know, those, those trigger a response too. those trigger a like, it's like for like, right? We call these mirroring neurons. And I'm no brain scientist, but this information is just so relevant and pertinent. We, we have mirroring neurons where we will respond in kind. And so returning to joy, if that's an important part of our story, well, this is a really significant thing for us to be pondering. Okay. So looking at, looking, and I've given some of this away, looking back at the Nehemiah text, people who are in grief, Nehemiah gets up and says, hey, look, you need to have a party. This day is holy. Don't actually grieve. Because today is uh, an amazing day, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites, the priesthood, calm the people and say, be still, for this is a holy day, right? So there's a, there's a calming activity. There's a, there's a, new, you know, there, there's a sense of neutralizing, neutralizing all, of the, all of the feedback loops of, of sorrow and sadness and grief and that kind of groupthink thing that happens, whether we like that that's a reality or not. And there's understanding that comes and that understanding comes from eating together and drinking together. And that understanding comes from serving one another, right? They, they say like, no one's going to go hungry in these next six days. There are these things that happen. So the question that I have for us today 
is what is the joy source here, right? What is the joy source? The obvious answer, the right answer, the religious answer, the biblical answer is that the Lord is the, is the joy source, right? But again, I think it's really important that, that the Lord is not just some shimmery thing in the corner or some idea that people suddenly grab hold of. But the joy source is this, this is, is a, a transfer from and through and among people and community, right? So the Lord is at the center of it. The Lord is fueling it. Yeah, I see Catherine here is commenting as well. Worship is, is, and certainly, and that's true. Worship is a big part of what we see happening, to, uh, uh, taking place here, right? Um, conscientious or conscious, intentional worship, thankfulness to God. And it's not in isolation, is it? Um, well, I'm not saying we'll never have moments of joy in isolation. We're going to get to that in a second. But we are going to most often experience joy in connection, in connection with others, in connection with God. And as we talked about last week, as we're closing out, in connection too with ourselves, actually. There's always a relationship that's at work. There's always a relationship that is fueling our joyful response, right? That relationship may also um, be a relationship with creation. I just spent five days out in the wilderness with Yuri Lepp, and we went uh, to the stunning park, uh, Philip Edward Island. Uh, in Georgian Bay, and the glory of, of creation in that space, and the kinds of things that we saw that involved no humans in the making, there was no human involved in the making of this rock, right? You know, it was, it was, um, it was all the, the mechanisms of creation, um, ancient, and it, powerful, and there was joy in that, it was a shared joy, there was a, there was a relationship with creation that was there, so that's a thing that's worth saying, there's a joy source there as well. Um, so, but joy is a thing that is experienced as grief is a thing that is experienced. And you might have had this experience as, as well, where, where maybe you get information and you know that that information is grievous information, but it doesn't actually hit. It doesn't hit you as a grievous experience. You ever had that? Uh, you know, 10,000 people swept away in a flood on the other side of the planet, people that we've never met before. We know that that's a grievous event. It does not always elicit our tears or even more than two minutes of thought, right? Our grief and our joy, these are things that we experience, that we encounter, that we have a connection to. So we can experience, we can, we can be adjacent to a joyful thought, just like we can be adjacent to a grief uh, um, a grievous thing and not experience, not be pulled into those things. So joy is something that we experience. We are in proximity to, and we feel it primarily before we know it. And sometimes it works in reverse. Sometimes we know a thing and then we're pulled into the grief. And that happened to me with the, uh, with the 215 uh, uh, kids that were, were discovered. I, I, I knew immediately that that was the most grievous, that that was such a heinous thing in our own nation's story. I didn't feel it for several hours. I didn't feel the grief, and it did, it did come. 
it did come, it followed as I contemplated and as the reality and the impact. And that's partially the way shock works. But there was a there was a gap between my knowing and my and my experiencing. But in the experience of it, the experience was was what respond was what elicited action, which elicited a meaningful response. And joy functions the same way. And so we continue to ask the question: What does it mean to be a community of joy? A community that elicits joy, um, a community that returns one another and others to joy, right? Where we, where we feel joy, where we feel that sense. And again, this is a definition that I borrowed from a couple um, that I was listening to their podcast last week, and they talked about joy. They defined it as being um, the knowledge that you are loved. Uh, no, sorry, uh, where is it here? The knowledge that someone else is glad to be with you no matter what. That was how they defined joy. Someone is glad to be with you no matter what. If you know that and you experience that, you will have joy. That's their premise. That feels pretty good. I think that, you know, I don't know that it's fulsome enough to be the definition of joy, but it's particular enough to be a helpful metric. And that relationship that can be, um, I, I know that, you know, that so-and-so is glad to be with me no matter what. I see it on their face. So I have that reference. I can know that with God. If I truly believe it and experience this, that the Lord is glad to be with me no matter what. And I can also experience that in my own person, right? I'm glad to be with myself no matter what. If any of those things are felt truths, experienced truths, we find in that, you know, some experience of joy, lowercase joy, maybe capital case joy. In the case of, of the Lord, this is ultimately what we want to train our hearts to know deeply is that the Lord is pleased to be with you. The Lord is pleased to be with me no matter what. Um, this is all part of, you know, what does it mean for us to be community where when we see one another is the sense of, I'm so glad to be among you. And what's at stake right now in our times? What's at stake at, right now in our times with all the divi divisiveness? So I'm not, you know, I tell you, and I'm not going to get into the specifics, but there are signs that I see on people's lawns. And it makes me not want to be with them. That's my initial response. Now, that's not Jesus in me. That's Chris, the divisive, highly, you know, politicized. I've got my opinions. And if you don't agree with them, then there's something wrong with you. I have that mechanism in me too, right? But that's what our, this, what our world is fostering. It's not this, I'm glad to be with you, but this, you know, I'm only glad to be with you if and thus and so. And in this context, then I'm glad to be with you. Right? Joy isn't flourishing in that environment. Joy is meek and, or meager in that environment. All right. So I believe it's the Lord's desire that all of us, and this is part of, I believe, the promise and the inheritance of the gospel and part of what it means to mature in Christ is to discover, establish, and put our feet on a baseline a base camp, maybe, is a better uh, metaphor of joy. That no matter where we go to, we know that we know that we know that we know that we have accessible to us a foundation of joy. There's something to return to. There's a joy to return to from grief, from anger, from anxiety, from, from all of these emotions. 
And if we're to believe the stories of one another's testimonies at various times in our life, we would say, well, it looks like this is true. It may not be an experienced truth for me right now, but it can be. So establishing joy as a baseline, as a foundation, or as a base camp. Something to return to. This is part of the project. This is part of the gospel project, right? And we know that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And, you know, that is such a neat little slogan that fits so nicely on bumper stickers that it's a bit problematic on that sense. But listen, whenever we're talking about the joy of the Lord, we're talking about the presence of Jesus. We're talking about the incarnation, the God who is really close by, the God who is present, the God who lives inside of you and me. The joy of that Lord, the joy of Christ is is our reference point is our is our strength the strength of our of anything that we might build built on that foundation so we talked a little bit about what happens to our brains in the midst of grief i want to talk a little bit about what happens to our brains in the presence of joy right um, and again, we, I know we've touched on this lots of times in the past and, you know, Brady, who's not on the call, Brady is an expert, literally a world-class expert on this stuff, right? What happens to our brains in the, when we are, you know, his, his term is juice, right? When we're, when we're in the zone, when, when we're, I would say when we're joyful, when we've access to joy, what's going on? Well, there are four kind of chemical responses that are happening in us that make us experience and allow us to experience different elements of joy, different elements of capacity and strength and um, joie de vivre, the joy of life, right? So the first one is the, is the most dangerous one that I have on my list here. So joy gives us a kick at dopamine, right? It dopes us up a little bit, right? And, um, and that is, it, it's, like a, it's like a momentary kick and infusion. It makes us, it, may, it gives us a sense of belonging. It makes us feel good. Um, and it even will sometimes supercharge our strength or capacity. So we get a kick of a dopamine and we might be able to, to lift something that we couldn't otherwise lift and, and or run, you know, like there's a, there's a jolt of energy in, in dopamine. But the problem of course, is that it's easily manipulated. It's highly addictive, literally. Um, and, uh, and it goes away real quick. So there's nothing wrong. I mean, our brains produce dopamine, right? And when we see that initial flash of a smile on somebody's face when they see us, or when we recognize someone um, that we haven't seen in a long time. I had this experience, Liv and I, when we saw our friends in Winnipeg, we hadn't seen for a year and a half, and we saw their faces and we got a kick of joy, right? Well, that was a, that was a dopamine kick, right? It's like, ah, yes, right? It's that initial response. It's beautiful. That's also the scary one. We'll talk about that in a sec. The next one, um, that happens, and this is kind of maybe the center of what we're going to talk about, is this oxytocin thing, right? This is the, this is that, they call it the hugging drug or the love hormone, right? It's this, it's this thing that makes us feel like we're really connected to one another in a long-term thing. It's like, I know you and I am known. I can trust you. When I'm around you, I feel better about myself. I feel better about life. Um, it's what happens when we hug one another. Now, this is problematic in our times because because guess what? We won't be hugging one another for, for a while. And I'm going to tell you really clearly, and I'm going to ask everyone to respect this. When we gather in person, uh, starting on the, on the third, 
we, we're going to ask even for people who are comfortable, who would be comfortable hugging that we actually don't hug there because not everyone actually is and that creates all kinds of other other things. So we're not, we're going to be keeping physical distance in that public space as we gather together, right? That's, that's part of what's being asked of us, right? Um, and so even though you guys know, I'm at this point, you know, particularly if you're vaccinated, I'm quite comfortable hugging, right? Right now, I am. Um, but it's complicated, isn't it? This is a complicated time. And hugging is complicated in the best of times. I can tell you pastorally, I've had lots of conversations with people who just said, I, I got hugged and I didn't know what to do because I really didn't want to be hugged. Um, you know, so we have a complicated relationship with it. But here's what I want you to know. Hugging releases oxytocin, right? This experience of being connected to each other, being connected to another, right? And to Catherine's point, this thing about worship, worship I'm, I'm convinced, I'm convinced, and this is just my own experience talking. Worship is a hug from the Holy Spirit. It can be. Those moments of encounter, you ever felt that? It's just like you got a 20-minute hug from the Holy Spirit. That's what worship is so often like. And it will always, always, as long as, long as, it's, as, long as it's wanted, I, I a hug is going to make us feel more peaceful and calmful and more connected, right? It needs to be 20 seconds long is what they say. They say a 20 second hug starts to, starts to get the brain active and kicking out some of this oxytocin stuff. But it's what it means to be connected and it's, it's core to joy because what this is, is a much more sustained and sustainable kind of hormone, right? Then there's this other thing, serotonin. This is also kind of a long-term, this is both oxytocin and serotonin, actually and dopamine too, in a lot of ways, are things that are, we can cultivate practices that, that build up, that build this up, that create and reinforce that sense of a baseline, something that we can actually return to, right? And serotonin, you know, that's largely a diet thing. So eating the right things, um, you know, doing what we can to sleep at the right times. Um, but it's also when we, when we harvest our good memories, right? Which is part of what happens, by the way, every time the law gets read uh, in, in, in the Jewish tradition, there's a, there's a return. Some of the memories are hard, but some of them are really beautiful. There's a return to this collective memory, good memories, bring up serotonin, right? Realizing goals. And when other people start to afford you trust and responsibility, so somebody comes along and they say, you ever had this? Somebody comes along and say, hey, I want to entrust you with this responsibility. And you kind of, your shoulders just go back a little bit, square, you square up a little bit, right? Square up. That's, that's actually serotonin. It's kind of at work there. There's the sense of capacity that comes in to that. And then the last is uh, of, of the kind of big four is, uh, is the endorphin, right? Endorphin kick. And endorphins are also kind of manipulatable, but this is what happens in the middle of like a long run, right? So they call this the runner's high. Endorphins happen in stress. Endorphins, you don't really get much of an endorphin kick when you're comfortable. Uh, endorphins happen when you're doing the hard thing anyway. That's when, that's when we press in and it's this amazing provision. I, I ran one marathon in my life. Uh, during that marathon, I got two endorphin kicks. I got two moments of runner's high. 
Um, and it was, you know, it, it was in the middle of, of doing this thing. And I've had these different instances in life. This is part of, you guys know that I, you know, will um, with some regularity do like really cold showers or ice cold baths or whatever. That's actually one of the things that I really like is that when I get out of that water is even though it's very uncomfortable, when I get out of that water, I feel fantastic. And that's endorphins rushing through my physiology, right? So that happens to us in uncomfortable things. So all of this has very pertinent um, responses to us if we look at them and tease them out in terms of being a community where these things can thrive in healthy and connected ways, right? Um, and so, you know, we're obviously not going to land all of this today in one talk, but this might just be ground zero for us as a community. What kind of community are we going to be, right? Um, I want us to be a kind of community where these will thrive, right where where when we walk in and we and we have that flash somebody smiles when they see us we and, and we know one another's names and and we get the we get the dopamine kick and then there's the oxytocin that comes from i mean maybe it's i don't know maybe it's an elbow bump the hugging thing is a, is is a complicated bit but worshiping together right this oxytocin and then this idea that we have shared time and space together we've realized goals together we're still in this you guys I mean, it's complicated. It's not easy. We don't have, a, we, you know, there's uncertainty in our future, but there's, there are places and there's a stored up serotonin center that we can access. And we do need these kicks of endorphins in the long run of our story. But all of these are part of building up a joy center. All right. We're getting, we're getting close to landing this, this, this morning here. We all want more joy, right? Are you in? Are you in to have more joy in your life? Does anyone not want any more joy? You're like, I've got my capacity. I don't need any more. I'm good. I could use a little less of it. In fact, I'm getting a little bored. It's a little boring. I've got too much joy, you know. Um, no, Joe, we have an inexhaustible appetite for joy and for all of the uh, elements of it. But joy gets compromised easily, doesn't it? Um, joy, uh, depending on what we're attached to, joy can be fleeting sometimes. Um, joy is compromised by things like evil. Uh, when we see something that's truly a, like a brokenness, a brokenness will compromise our joy, will weaken our joy, perhaps even shatter, even if momentarily. Ugliness, the ugliness of uh, a cruelty, that kind of thing, um, will compromise joy. If you've ever walked around the old buildings in East Berlin um, that were super institutional and ugly, uh, they are places that would compromise joy. Joy will not flourish in that, even architecturally, right? Ugliness, strife and war. Those will um, uh, really blow hard against our, our joy flame. Violence and poverty will all um, come at our joy. They will all, and, and they will have effect. I don't care who you, I don't care how, mature you are 
you know, we can access, I'm, I believe we can access joy in these places. I believe that we're not cut off from joy in these places, particularly when we talk about the presence of the Holy Spirit and the nearness of Christ in the midst of all things. But we don't come by it easily in those places. We don't come by it even accidentally in those places, right? We, it will affect us. If we were comfortable and suddenly we find ourselves in abject poverty, our joy level is going to dip before it goes up, even if we might discover new joy in the midst of that poverty, right? It's a challenge. And so this is why the gospel of Jesus, as we articulate and understand it, is a prerequisite for any kind of sustained baseline of joy. Now, I'm not talking about experience joy. Anybody can experience joy, and hopefully everybody experiences some kind of joy at some kind of time. But the gospel, the gospel is the, Christ, all, all, Christ alone can address these things. Christ alone has the answer to the sorts of things that I just listed, because all of those are, are systemic and unchangeable by us. Evil, brokenness, ugliness, strife, war, violence, poverty, we cannot fix those things. They will be there when we die. They will be there long after we die. Our joy must learn to be, or must be able to thrive in the presence of such things. And the gospel is the only kind of underlying truth that, that will actually sustain that. And in this, I'm no universalist at all. This is the gospel of Jesus. This is the, this is the invitation of God into a very specific promise that the ills of the present world are not going to prevail. For us to have a baseline of joy, to be able to anticipate and build and cultivate these other things, these, these different mind drugs, essentially, that are, are these hormones, um, we need to believe this. We need to train our hearts in this direction, at the very least. Remind ourselves that the, pre the ills of the present world will not prevail. The separation of people who should love one another the separation is not going to be sustained, that the gospel can actually reconcile. That's what the gospel promises. The Ark of the Covenant, of, of the, sorry, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Gospel, the story of the gospel is one of healing, one of restoration, one of remaking things that are broken, that what is ill is going to be healthy, that what is separated is going to be brought together, that what is at war right now will be brought to peace. Pressing in and building on top of joy, Joy as a physiological experience, we can't hack it. We can't, we can't do brain hacks enough to war against the divisiveness and the brokenness of our world. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Right? This is about a joy that is deeply rooted in the kingdom coming because we don't, we can, we can cultivate an access and it's helpful to have joy that lives in the past that we can actually pull into the present. We can do that. That's a mechanism. That's a skill set. That's a tool. You can do that. You can remember a happy thing and, and feel some measure of, in, of impact in the present. We can see moments of beauty. We can see the rose that's kind of growing up through the, the crack in the cement. We can, we can recognize kindnesses in the, midst of, in the midst of horrific things. We can do that and we can have a touch of joy, but but the thing that's connected into the future of God is the thing that actually makes the sustainable. The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is inexhaustible. And the joy of the Lord is written into the fulfilling of the story. This is why what we believe 
about the end of the story matters. It's not just about today. It is about today. But this is, this is really integrated. What we believe about the world matters. And so um, I want to close out this way with a really, really beautiful, hopeful text. And this is from Isaiah. And um, Tim, if you've got that ready, we'll pull you up in just a second here to read it. But I want you to focus on, as Tim reads this, I want you to focus on this, this phrase that shows up a couple of times. And this might become a song pretty soon. There's a phrase that gets repeated. It says, in that day, you will say. In that day, you will say. And while I'm not encouraging us to just kind of push off our hope into the other side of death or whatever, because that our anchor, our anchor, our just, all the things, it, in that day, what are we going to say? In that day, what do we believe we're going to say? And so, Tim, if you want to just read those verses, and we'll just kind of, I want to encourage us to listen through that lens. All right. So, and you will say in that day, I thank you, God. You were angry, but your anger wasn't forever. You withdrew your anger and moved in and comforted me. Yes, indeed. God is my salvation. I trust I won't be afraid. God, yes, God is my strength and song. Best of all, my salvation. Joyfully, you'll pull up buckets of water from the wells of salvation. And as you do it, you'll say, give thanks to God, call out his name, ask him anything, shout to the nations, tell them what he's done, spread the news of his great reputation, sing praise songs to God, he's done it all, let the whole world know what he's done. Raise the roof, sing your hearts out, O Zion, the greatest lives among you, the holy of Israel. As you can tell from Raise the Roof, I was reading from the message version of this. It's a great version. Great version. And if you've ever heard, heard Eugene Peterson talk about translating Isaiah, it's hilarious. It's, uh, he actually blew off Bono one time uh, who wanted to meet with him because he was like, I'm translating Isaiah. I don't have time for you. Um, <laughs> it's awesome. In that day, that's, this is the, this, this idea of being anchored in not just our own wishful thinking, but in the Lord's, in the Lord's day, right? We talk about this, the Lord, the day of the Lord. Um, and thank you, Tim. Uh, and so that's where I want to, that's where I want to land us here today. Obviously this is, you know, this is a longer story. Um, but sometimes, you know, we can get lost in the woods and, um, that whole expression, not seeing the forest for the trees. That's a time like this. It's hard to see the forest for the trees in a time like this. I get lost. I get lost in the politics. I get lost in my news feeds. I get lost in my own ambitions and hopes. And I just, sometimes I just find myself wildly in the weeds. And, um, and so this anchor, this reminder that the Lord's strength is in, is in a beautiful day, in a day that is as perfect as the desires and intentions of God for you and me. Um, and so I'm just going to pray that out and, uh, and we'll close for this morning, at least uh, with, the, with the live stream. So Jesus, thank you that when we talk about hope, when we talk about joy, um, that we're not just talking about uh, 
closing up our ears and eyes and not being able to and not seeing the world and and just kind of keeping it all out there out there so we don't have to be influenced by it but lord that you actually have a joy that can live and thrive and be cultivated and and be present in the midst of all things in the midst of all of our circumstances and lord we know and we recognize and we confess that there are things in our lives um, both coming at us and also as a result of our own efforts that are uh, that are at work to to undo the joyful work of your spirit among us. We confess those things. We recognize those things. And we declare in the face of them that your joy is, is inexhaustible, that, you, that the strength that comes from that is inexhaustible. And so we ask, Lord, that you would weave this into us, that you would make us a people um, who would be radiating to one another as we find ourselves in the weeds, as we find ourselves drifting, that we would be able to see and be returned to joy by one another, by your word, by your presence. We pray these things in Jesus' name. One final thing, and this is a this is actually a bio, this is actually a biohack. Okay, this is just a tool because I was really curious about this because because the whole hugging thing is a problem right? Because 20 second hugs right now is complicated for a lot of us. Some of us are in total isolation or close to it still. So this is verified. Did you know that you, you can hug yourself and it still counts? You can hug yourself and it still counts. And I, I so there's a couple things that are important to do this. One is that you, apparently you need to cross your arms Right, so you can do this, you can go across like so. By the way, is this not what we sometimes do to console ourselves? You can rock back and forth if you want to, that's all acceptable. 20 seconds or more. And even saying the things to yourself that, that you would receive from another person, it sounds, it sounds like a Saturday Night Live uh, you know, positive thinking thing, but like, you can, you can hug yourself and say, I love you. You've got this. You can do that. You can do that during worship too. Do you know that you can do that while you're singing? And I, so that's a hack. That's going to, that's going to physiologically have a response. That's going to be helpful every time you do it. It's not going to fix anything, but it's going to make a difference. But here's the bigger thing. We can pray this way too. We don't need to pray like this or like this. But how do your prayers change if you hug yourself? And I was thinking about this this morning. If you hug yourself, how does your praying change? What do you hear the Lord say to you in that space? This is a time where connections are complicated and hard and joy is, con joy is all about our connections. And so I just really want to encourage us into this practice. And as, as much as it might seem like you know, pathetic, I, you know, oh, I'm going to hug myself. I'm telling you, do it. This is really helpful stuff. So that's kind of a freebie, but I didn't want, I didn't want to miss it. All right.
Well, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, close up the live feed. So if you're watching on, on Facebook or YouTube, bless you into your week. I uh, hope you have a great one. Uh, we will be back on Friday morning for um, our exam and uh, this week. And we'll be meeting uh, as well a Zoom call on Sunday. Um, again, it'll be a little different because I won't be live, but I'll have a little something to share. Keep it shorter like we did while I was on holidays. Um, and uh, I'm going to go off and marry my brother. going to go off and celebrate my brother getting married. <laughs> Rephrase that. All right. All right. Bless you guys.